Have you ever had one of those times when you, you, you needed to sleep, you wanted to sleep, you were ready to sleep, but there were like things going on around you that stopped you from falling asleep? I'm sure most of us have. You know, when you're laying there and you just crave the sleep and you're ready and then something alerts you and then you're almost asleep and then something alerts you. When we need sleep, that can be a very anxiety-inducing thing to sit there and be trying to fall asleep and yet can't quite grasp it. This happened to me uh, several years ago. I remember one Saturday morning in particular that I, my wife and I were, were laying there relaxing on a Saturday morning and my kids were a little bit younger. Right now I have, we have four children. We have two teenage daughters and two sons. Please pray for us. And, but several years ago when they were younger, I remember this one Saturday morning, and they were all out playing in the playroom. So they were old enough to kind of be on their own in the morning, but still young enough to be loud and rowdy, right? That's how kids are. They were, they were just being kids. They weren't doing anything wrong. But on this Saturday morning, I was able to sleep in. And so I was trying to. And I'd ask them numerous times, please be quiet. Okay, please quiet down. And time and time again, they would wake me up again. So finally, I, I gave in, I acquiesced, and I got up. And I went to my children, and I walked out there and saw their beautiful faces and got down to them and gathered them around and, and looked at them, and I said, Siri, set a reminder for seven years from now to wake up my children with clanging cymbals. <laughs> and that's next year, girls. <laughs> Get ready. It's not the most loving reaction to my children, right? But that's kind of what anxiety can do to us. It can make us act in ways we wouldn't normally act. It can make us say things we wouldn't normally say. It makes us react instead of respond. When we react to something, a reaction is like meeting an action with another action. And so it's often instant and it happens immediately without thinking. When we respond to something conversely, it's more intentional, thoughtful, and purposeful. The stress that anxiety can produce often leads us toward reacting instead of responding. It clouds our mind and sometimes even how we behave. So in this series we're in, it's called You, Me, and My Anxiety, and we've been doing this for a couple weeks now. If you weren't here, the first week our vicar kicked it off and, and talk to us about being stuck in a corner and how sometimes when we're stuck in a corner relationally, we're filled with anxiety. And last week, Pastor Matt talked to us about triangulation, which is a fancy word for a third person being involved in a relationship when they shouldn't be. So like two friends and they can't talk to one another or they go through a, a third party to kind of see what they said or tell them this or whatever, that's triangulation. And that's where we've been. Now, None of us claim to be experts. None of us are medical experts on anxiety at all. And there is absolutely a place, and there are multiple times and multiple folks who struggle with a medical anxiety. We're, we're approaching it from a spiritual standpoint. Sometimes anxiety, even spiritually, is a signal of something else that's going on in life. So it's something that it's, it's, it's showing up, not because in and of itself is a medical issue, but because there's something that's happening in your heart, in your spirit, that's giving you anxiety. 
Anxiety is also a, a warning system. It can be an early detection of something that's about to happen. It's kind of sandwiched in between. So it can be showing you that something's ha- going on and then warning you that you're maybe about to react when you're feeling anxiety, when you're feeling anxious. You know that, you know what? I might not be reacting well. I may react to the situation instead of respond to it. And sometimes the way anxiety shows up is, is it's a physical manifestation, so you'll feel it in your heart like a racing heart, and you, you can't stop it. Or your thoughts are spinning, your mind is just going 100 miles an hour, and you can't, you can't help it. Or it'll be a tightening in your, in your gut or your stomach, or even like a, a flustering of your whole body. And these are things that show up whether you, whether you want them to or not, because the anxiety makes that happen. A little over a year ago, Pastor Matt preached a sermon called Anxious Like Jesus, and his opening line of the sermon was, everybody is anxious. And I heard that, and I thought, well, yeah, that's true. I've, I've, I know folk, people I know and love have struggled with anxiety, and, and I've had times when I've been anxious, but I also thought, honestly, I don't know if I would say I struggle with anxiety. And then I thought about it, and I, and I read more about it, and as I read and as I thought about it in my own life, I, I realized that there's also not just anxiety that is like a revealed anxiety in your body, but also a hidden anxiety. And that can show up in different ways. That may show up in, in irritability, and you don't know why. Or maybe you could, be, you could have this hidden anxiety that shows up in, in something where you're exhausted and you don't know why. Because for me, this hidden anxiety, and if you're like me at all, you may experience this. You may know that if you've got like a big, like a contentious conversation you need to have, you may not get all butterflied about it. You may not feel a tightening or spinning thoughts. Or if you have to go into a room full of people who you don't know at all, you may be fine with that. That may not make you nervous or make you anxious. Or if the boss calls you into his office, that may not make you feel anything. And so sometimes people with hidden anxiety can even struggle to understand those with a revealed anxiety. And some of you are already anxious about the thing I just said about having to go into a room with people you don't know, right? But sometimes those with hidden anxiety, we can come across as unloving to those with like a revealed anxiety. So we can say things like, why does it matter? Why do you care? It doesn't really matter. It wouldn't bother me. Here's how to handle it. And we can come across as unloving and and actually contribute to a loved one feeling more anxious. And the thing we need to understand is whether we have a revealed anxiety, whether we have a, a hidden anxiety, is that all of these things, all of our responses to these things make us feel like we have lost control, like we have lost power over our own life. Because we like to live as though we have some semblance of control, some semblance of power in our life. And our culture tries to say how important power is and that you need it. So we'll have phrases like money is power. And it can lead us to think, okay, well, I've got to have wealth in order to to have any sort of power over my life. 
or exchange money out and say, knowledge is power. We would say, well, I've got to have knowledge, I've got to have intellect to have any power over my life. Now, that's not to say that something is wrong with wealth or something is wrong with, is wrong with knowledge. There, there are a lot of uh, verses and a lot of wealthy people in Scripture who are righteous and use their wealth to be generous to others. Wealth in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And intellect in the same way. Until we are called to learn, to be students of Scripture, and, and to learn and grow. I love education. But if we take those things and we make them the, the definition of how to have control of our life, we're grasping at the wind. There's an article I saw from Forbes that even echoed this further and said, if you want to have control over your life and make a difference in your organization or world, you must accept the significance of power in your ability to achieve your goals. This article is basically saying you can't have, you have to have power in order to achieve anything. Then what if we feel like we don't have power then? Do we feel like we're still worth something? Not if we follow that mindset. Not at all. Power is the ability to do things by virtue of strength, skill, resources, or authorization. The Bible talks a lot about power, but when it does, it often refers to power that God has. And it, it really, there's about four categories that fit when the Bible's talking about power. It fits into one of these categories. The first one is the unlimited power of God. So when the Bible talks about God's unlimited power, it's, it's like in creation. God made the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God. And there was nothing. God made something from nothing. Well, you or I make something, we're, we're using resources that already exist, right? If we make dinner, we're making dinner with food that already exists. If we, if we build something, we're using materials that already exist. God created everything from nothing. So God has unlimited power. That's just one example. The second example is the power of God in the lives of his people. Now, this often shows up by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit working in the lives of believers to give faith and to lead and to guide in life. Another way the Bible talks about power is the power of God seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sent His Son to live on this earth, to be a tangible representation, just like we took communion where we could tangibly taste and see and feel something. He sent Jesus to be tangible, to be incarnate is what we call it. God to become man and to live a life, to live through the things and go through the struggles that you and I have gone through, yet to do it perfectly. This is the power of God. And he did this with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he went to his death on a cross. Again, the power of those Son of God. And then the final category the Bible talks about power is the limited power that God gives to his creation. Now we see this all throughout scripture. We see God actually does give some power to his creation. So for example, back in the beginning in creation, he, said, he told Adam, name the animals. But he didn't just say name them as a command. He also gave him the authority to do it. So Adam could say, I have the power to name the creation. And later on, with Moses, there was a guy named uh, uh, Pharaoh. He was a ruler of Egypt. 
in Moses' time. And Israelites had lived in Egypt for about 400 years, and they were at peace with the, with the Egyptians. And then all of a sudden, a new ruler steps up, and he gets threatened. He gets threatened because this group is about two million strong, and he's concerned that they can either overthrow his people or that they will, they will team up with, with uh, Egypt's enemies. And so Pharaoh, this man in power, enslaves the Israelites. And then God tells Moses, go, tell Pharaoh to free my people. But he doesn't, God doesn't just tell Moses to do that. He gives him the authority to speak on God's behalf. He empowers Moses. And even Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, he gathered, you know, his 12 disciples, his group of guys that he trusted the most, and he had them as like these, these 12 guys that he was going to impart his teaching to, and they had been sitting under his authority and under his teaching. Yet when they're about to go out, they still don't have any authority to do anything. And Jesus says, Jesus one day called together his 12 disciples, and then he gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Jesus gave them this power and authority that they did not have before. So see, true power ultimately comes from God. So now, what am I saying? Does that mean that we're all weak? Does that mean we're just weak and there's no power that we have? In one sense, yeah. In one sense, yeah. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ who is writing to a church in Corinth uh, is, is struggling with something. He, he's in prison and he is saying, you know what, I've got this, this thorn in my side is what he calls it. We don't know exactly what this was, but this was this thing that really brought Paul down and affected him spiritually and physically. And he had prayed and prayed for God to take it away. He asked Jesus, please take this burden away from me. And then, and then Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul said, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and hardships and persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul is saying, despite my weaknesses and failures, Jesus Christ is glorified through them because that's when his power manifests. That's when his power is shown because this couldn't be done of my own accord. The only way this could happen is through Christ. So praise God for my weaknesses so he gets the glory. Now we'll often see people who seem to have great success or even great power, yet they reject Christ. And so it's easy to go, wait a minute, not, not everybody's power is, is needed from their weakness. There's a lot of people who have a lot of power and they don't seem to care about God at all. And that's absolutely true. There are some people, there are lots of people, in fact, who reject God and live by their own power. In fact, going back to Pharaoh, what we just talked about, Pharaoh was living by his own power. He was ruling how he saw fit. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He was enslaving people because he was afraid of losing that power. Yet it was still God who gave him the power. Ultimately, God let him be on that throne and put him on that throne for a reason. And the same God who gave Pharaoh power also later took it away. Because when we rely on our own power, we don't glorify God or recognize his power. 
It can be very freeing, though. So it's a hard statement, right, in our culture to say, well, I live, I'm weak, I rely on God, because we want to be strong, we want to be able to take care of ourselves. But it can be very freeing to submit to the creator of the universe and to live by his power and to trust in him. This has shown up very tangibly in, in my life recently. So my family and I moved over here to Houston about two months ago from San Antonio. And St. Mark, y'all have been awesome. We have been welcomed. We've been loved. It's a great community, great church. We're, we're, we're so blessed and thankful to be here and thankful to all of you. But there's still a little part of us in San Antonio. It's not our friendships, although we've got some amazing friends over there, some dear friends we consider family. And it's not the memories, although we have some great memories in San Antonio. The part of us that is still left in San Antonio is our house that won't sell. (laughs) It's been like 50 days, and it's just sitting on the market. And honestly, if I'm being transparent, it's caused, caused me some angst, some anxiety. Now, there's nothing I can do, and we've got an amazing realtor who's not just letting it sit there and listing it, but he's also actively trying to sell it. But there's nothing I can do to make that happen. I am powerless in this situation. And as hard as my realtor is working, he's even powerless in this situation because he can't force it to sell. So this is a time of sitting waiting and trusting in God. While I'd love to rely on my own power and get this done, there's nothing I can do. So then I ask you a question. Do you have that same situation? Is there something in your your life that you're relying on your own power for and not seeking out God? We all do it. We all have done it. We will do it again in the future. None of us will ever have this down perfectly because we are always relying upon God. Even if we don't recognize it, even if we don't see it, we rely upon Him. Because ultimately, Jesus is the one that has power. See, Jesus came down of His own volition, of His own power, to actually live powerless. Jesus was on a throne. He was worshiped in glory, and he came down to live in poverty, but he chose that. That's great power, one who would lay down his life for those he loves. He chose to do this. He chose to live this life. He chose to live it, but he did it perfectly. Jesus lived this life that we should live, but we can't. We're all helpless to live a perfect life. And then Jesus went to the cross to take away the power of sin that sin had over all of us, to die on the cross, to take our sins with us, those sins we confessed earlier, those sins that we remain in our hearts, those sins that we struggle with every day. He took those to the cross to kill them so that they would not have power over us. And he rose from the dead to give us life. And there's no sin that we can commit There's nothing we can do, nothing we can say for that to be taken away from us. So then that begs the question, 
what did Luke 12, 10 mean? I'm going to read that verse again. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You know, as we're talking about anxiety, I felt it was important to also address this verse because this verse is one of those that I've seen over my ministry numerous times where people have a lot of questions about it. There's some anxiety even tied with this verse. Like, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I didn't know it? Have I said something I shouldn't have said? Have I done something? Have I grieved Him? Have I done something to lose my salvation? Because this says it won't be forgiven. Have I done that? And friends, I'll tell you, one of my favorite verses is Ephesians 2.8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift. So when we receive this gift, there's nothing we can do to lose it. This verse isn't saying if you say the wrong thing, if you've blasphemed against God in one wrong way and you didn't even realize it, you can lose your salvation, you won't be forgiven. This verse is saying all are accepted. Now, the only issue is if you completely reject Jesus Christ, if you say, I don't want that gift, I don't want you, I don't want God, I'm good, I'm by myself, I've got it covered, don't need you. That is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit points to Jesus Christ. And if we reject our faith, if we reject faith that's given, if we reject God, then we're saying, I don't want salvation. Give me the other option. Instead of eternal life, I want eternal death. So there's no thing you can say, there's no word you can say to accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, As we've seen with Paul, if you know the story of Paul, before he was called Paul, he was a guy named Saul who was a murderer of Christians. You could say he absolutely, definitely, unequivocally rejected Jesus as Lord until he received faith. And then he received Jesus as Lord. So even if you've had a time in your life where you've said, I don't want you, God, that's not permanent. God has every moment to save you. And if you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my friends, you are saved. There's nothing you have to do. There's no certain prayer to say. There's no church service to go to. There's no Bible study group that you need to go to enough times to be saved. You're saved by grace, a gift, through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And just to hit it a little bit harder, right before that, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, excuse me, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, neither our worries, our anxieties, about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can't lose our salvation because we say something wrong. 
can't lose our salvation because we just did something wrong. We receive life and salvation from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is faithful to the end. His faithfulness never ends. He said he would always be there, even to the end of the age. And he is faithful to his word. And Jesus Christ has the last word on power. Amen.